appreciate the opportunity to be with you and to have the opportunity to share with you again. In case you haven't caught up with it, there's some books out there called Breaking the Spirit of Poverty, which you can have a look at at your leisure afterwards. So I'm going to be speaking about some of that um, tonight. And um, I've enjoyed the time here. I just... I love the church, love the house, what love, love what God's doing here. And I've had opportunity to catch up with a few folk uh, just individually over the last few days. And that's been, um, that's been good for me. You know, I just, uh, just love that. And uh, some great people around the place. How many know you're a blessed house? You can do better than that. Oh, man, it's... Uh, I'll be honest, I, I said to, uh, I've probably said to a few people, but, um, you know, I, I travel a lot. There's not many houses that you go into where you see such a, a number of such significant younger people, young married couples and business people and, you know, in one place. You just don't see that that often. There is a very unique group of people and there'd be a lot that I haven't met obviously but just within the ones I've met I've gone wow the potential is just awesome and so that that tells me that God has some big plans for the place you know what I mean like he's he's put very strategic people here strategic thinkers and just yeah just awesome so for me to have the privilege of spending a bit of time with them individually and just hearing their hearts and and that kind of thing has just been uh, been very refreshing I want to uh, I want to just spend a couple of minutes. I am of the understanding there's people here from another from other churches. I'm not really sure whether that's so or not. But I just if there is, um, then just bear with me. I heard there were some others coming and I wouldn't know. But I just want to speak. It's all thrive. Oh well, we can throw that last bit away. Um, uh, because I do want to I do want to speak to you because there's. There's something that's been on my heart since the time I, I came here. There have been a couple of things, but one in particular that is to do with just the change of season. And, you know, you're entering a new season and um, adjusting to a new style of leadership. And, and one of the things that, that we must recognize, when God changes seasons, he changes the style of leadership. If you look at Moses, Joshua, all of that kind of thing, the transitions, there's always a whole lot of change goes on. And uh, some people find change easy and some people are challenged simply because of the way they're wired up. Um, obviously, there are those that are just uh, stubbornly resistant to any sort of change. Uh, and that's another category. But, you know, some of us are wired differently. Like my wife, um, you know, she finds change more difficult than I do. I can live in a very transient kind of environment. You know, I, I don't need a lot of boundaries and, and, and borders to make me feel secure. I'm, I'm just comfortable in whatever's going on. Whereas she needs a bit more, you know, things around her. And, and that's not, um, nothing wrong with any of that. And all of us are a little bit different. So I say that to say this, that in a process of change, there are people that adopt easily and quickly and those that take time. And so in your church right now, you have people that have already in their head and heart gone click and they're in another zone and you've got others that are still processing through, you know, going through whatever it is that they're going through. And part of that is a grief process. How many know there's always disappointment? Nobody knows, eh? Much. 
And with every disappointment, there is grief associated with it. And so unresolved grief causes you to lose vision. And that's linked in Scripture, blindness and unresolved grief. And so if you stay in that place of disappointment and grief, you lose a sense of direction, you, you lose the passion and fire that draws you into vision and all of that. That's a normal part of the process. The only thing I'd say to you, don't stay there. <laughs> you know, and, and so I want to just quickly show you a scripture, um, uh, 2 Kings 10, verse 15 through 16. And I just want to make a couple of comments about it because your leader's here tonight and there are some um, critical elements in this verse that applies to the change of church leadership and people within their congregation or in their sphere of influence every time there is a change. People have to process certain things that are shown here. So it's talking about Jehu. And um, thank you, Jack, for getting about 20 scriptures lined up for me tonight. I appreciate that. I want you to read some things. Uh, if you can't read, just look at the pictures. Now when he departed from there, speaking of Jehu, it says he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? Jehonadab answered him, it is. And Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand and he took him up to the end of the chariot. And uh, then he said, come with me, see my zeal for the Lord. So they had him ride in his chariot. Now, Jehu had, had just been anointed as a king. And, the, and so he comes and he asks a critical question, which every kingdom leader has to ask to every follower. Or every follower has to answer individually. Is your heart toward me as my heart is toward you? See, see, Jehu has already proven the condition of his heart because he's responded to the challenge. He's burnt his bridges. He's already in the process, and he's, he's taken on the responsibility. His heart is now towards the people. He's already stepped into that. So the condition of his heart is beyond question. And, uh, and what you see is... Uh, you know, it's a question that's got to be asked to every potential follower before they can come on board with where he's going. And, um, and the, you know, different translations, NIV says, are you in accord with me as I am with you? NLT says, are you as loyal to me as I am to you? So there's got to be a heart, a heart connection that leads to a heart commitment. That's where it starts. You can't follow people if you don't have a heart commitment to them, a heart connection with them, based on recognition of the mantle they have. And, and, and let me just throw something out here, because sometimes people say, oh, well, I've got to earn my trust. Actually, that's not a biblical concept at all. That's a secular concept. Every authority is ordained of God. And we are called to respond to that authority as the representative of God. So it doesn't matter whatever position a person had put in. How many know God is in control of all of that? Come on. You know, you can say, well, I don't agree with the appointment. That's irrelevant. God has, you know, he's in control of all of that. That's why Romans 13 says every authority is ordained of God. 
So, so it's not a case, oh, well, I'll see how you go and then I'll decide. It's no, actually, because of the appointment and the hand of God on your life, I choose to trust you. I choose to open my heart to you and, and kind of engage with you and hear your heart and, and all of that. And so, so you have this heart thing that's got to happen. And then the next thing is, if your heart's right, give me your hand. That's a commitment to the person. So, and you have to have a commitment to the person before you have a commitment to the vision. Because then he says, okay, you give me your hand, you made a commitment to me, now get on the, car, on the chariot and let's ride together and see my zeal for the Lord. In other words, this is about vision now. You're committed to me, now get on board and make a commitment to the, to the vision, the direction we're going, and it's all about the purposes of God. Now that's a progression that everybody has to make. Whether they make it consciously or unconsciously is not the point. But as leaders, if you've got people around you that are struggling with change and, you know, they're kind of grieving over things that used to be and what about this and what about that, uh, can I just encourage you to direct them to this passage of Scripture and remind them that every time there's a change of season, in order to bring in the new season, there has to be a change of leadership style. And uh, Daniel 2.21 says that God changes the times and the seasons and he raises up kings and he, he, doesn't, he doesn't use the word deposes king, or removes kings and raises up kings. So in other words, the times and seasons changing is, is um, there's a change of leadership in conjunction with that. Because there's got to be, just like Moses, you know, his style of leadership is entirely different from Joshua's. And, and now it's time to go in and actually possess the promised land. It needs a new style of leadership and a whole different methodology and all of that kind of thing. So I, I just wanted to throw that out there tonight because I'm just so conscious of where you are in a church in, in process. And, and, you know, you don't change from one season to the next in five minutes. It's progressive, and often it takes us a lot longer than we realize for, you know, new leaders to find their feet, for people to find, you know, it all settles down. And, and in 2 Kings 19, 29 to 30, it says, the first year you eat what springs up of itself, second year what comes out of that, and the third year root goes down and, and fruit comes up. And often it takes us much longer before, you know, the new thing is actually established. And in between time, you're kind of surviving on what you've got. And it doesn't mean it's not productive or it's not good for three years, but it just means there is a process of time before we really get established and the new things uh, beginning to happen. So uh, let me just encourage you with that. Does that make any sense to anybody? You wouldn't tell me if you do. Oh, yes, some of you are. Okay. Um, and uh, look, the reality is that every, every church, every change of season, you go through the same thing in your personal life. How many know sometimes God moves you on and you do a bit of grieving over what wasn't there? And maybe it's over a, a change of job or, you know, whatever it is. We grieve over all sorts of things. Every time you have a disappointment, grief is associated with it. And what you've got to remember is you need to process that. Don't allow it to hang around. You've got to make a decision to position yourself to draw the grace of God so that you don't, uh, you know, end up losing vision, becoming blind. See, what happens is you lose vision, you don't know where you're going. And then if you stay there, you lose your sight and you become like Samson in the prison house going round and round in circles. You know, he's bald, blind and bound and he, he's not going anywhere. And then you're asking the question, where am I? And you meet people in church life that are like that. They just are going round in circles and they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. Or, you know, how, how many know what I'm talking about? And generally that's because of unresolved grief associated with disappointments. 
And so there's always the possibility of those kind of things unless we're very focused and understand that. Amen. Here endeth the first lesson. Um, I, as I began to pray about tonight, and Glenn had given, you know, me reasonable direction about the night and, and, and what was uh, what he wanted to happen. And as I prayed into it, I just, it just, I just couldn't settle on it, you know. And I had this thing about finance. And sometimes I've got to watch that because it's one of my life messages. And so it's easy for me to go, let's talk about money and, um, uh, you know, all of that. But I, I knew it was more than that. And, um, and so the reason is twofold. Is, is one is because I want to kind of speak into the entrepreneurial anointing over the house. But it's more than that. There are things in the spirit over the place that need to be broken in association with finance. And there are things over people's lives that need to be broken in mindsets to do with finance. And in order to see the release of the intention of God, you know, there's some stuff that needs to shift. Um, when we talk about an entrepreneurial anointing, um, you know, an anointing is an expression of the grace of God. It's a supernatural enabling, and it's always related. It's always, you know, it's not something that's earned or, or, or something that's deserved or we negotiate for. It just flows from the Father's heart. But it's always in order to bring both blessing to us, but also to equip us for the fulfillment of his purposes. So whatever he pours into our life, is always, you know, we, we, uh, you know, we have the benefit of that, but it's always about his equipping to enable us to do what we're called to do. And, um, and, and you know, one of the expressions of the grace and the favor of God on people, and, and when you look through the scriptures, throughout scripture, part of the miracle working power of God is in relation to financial breakthrough and wealth creation. And, um, and when we think about entrepreneurial things, you know, we generally think about business and wealth creation, that kind of thing. But actually, an entrepreneur is a person that's a dreamer, a creator, a pioneer, and there's a whole creative edge to their life. And so when that, that entrepreneurial anointing, it, it stimulates creativity of all sorts of things, and it draws creative people under that anointing. And so that's where you get that, that kind of thought of the mosaic that I referred to on Sunday morning. And then, I, of course, I discovered you had a meeting that you were calling that on Sunday night. And so um, wealth is, is relative to the society you live in. I remember years ago being in Papua New Guinea, and once you get out of the main centres, people's wealth was back in the, uh, we were up there in 82 and 84, people's wealth was measured by the number of pigs they had. And the average family in the village would have three or four pigs. So if you had six pigs, you're wealthy. Wealth's not about the house you live in or the car you drive. It's relative to your society. Now, having six pigs in New Zealand doesn't make you wealthy. But in Papua New Guinea, it did. And in some villages, people would be wealthy because they had an iron roof on their hut instead of a thatch. And, and so when we're talking about wealth creation, we're talking about 
relative to the society to the society you live in so it's not that okay we're a wealthy nation so we qualify it's kind of like how are you doing in relation to the society that in which you live because part of the the thing of wealth creation and and all of that kind of thing is about uh, the evidence of the hand of God upon our life how many believe that God wants to bless every part of your life so most of us would say yes but actually is that actually happening so you know is there that evidence of the hand of God on my life that brings glory to him in every aspect of my life. And um, so um, most, what I find is this, when you trip around turn, uh, church life, that many Christian people have not come to terms with the biblical fact that wealth creation is compatible with real spirituality. Wealth creation is compatible with true spirituality. Yeah, I know in a meeting like this, if I ask you a question, most of you are going to nod. But faith is entirely different from mental agreement. Because you agree with something Scripture says doesn't mean to say you've got faith for it or you have a revelation of it. Because faith and revelation and belief is much deeper than giving mental assent to something. And, um, and so tonight I want to talk about... Um, Breaking out of financial limitation, I, w- I want to talk to you about how to bring in your harvest. How many, bu- how many would, would say tonight, I think I've sown more seed than I've seen harvest come in. How many of you kind of feel like God owes you some harvest? Well, I want to talk about that because, see, bringing in your harvest is actually about wealth creation. And, um, and in saying all of that, I want you to remember tonight, and, you know, we've only got a limited period of time, and so you can't talk about everything that you want to talk about in conjunction with it. But I want you to bear in mind that I am talking about Jesus being at the center of it all. We're not talking about wealth creation for the sake of that. We're talking about it in the context of the kingdom. Now, here's a thought for you. Jesus spoke about money and possessions more than anything else, but he always spoke about it in the context of the kingdom. And if you don't see those things in the context of the kingdom, you'll always get it wrong. And, um, and uh, you know, the first principle of success in life, if I can put it that way, is to take 100% responsibility for everything in your life. So in other words, what I'm experiencing now, uh, whether it be with my health, my finance, my relationships, or whatever else, is 100% the consequence of decisions I've made and the way I've positioned myself in life. Now, what happens is most people spend so much of their life blaming and complaining and making excuses. If I'm going to be effective in life, I have to stop that and take 100% responsibility for everything that's going on because as immediately I start blaming and making excuses and, uh, and complaining about it, I lose power. When I distance my, I say, oh, it's the economy. Oh, it's the government. Oh, it's God. Oh, it's the devil. Oh, it's the boss. Oh, it's the pastor. How many know every time you say something like that, now you have lost, uh, lost power over that thing. You've, you've now put it outside. So nothing I can do about it, see. And, and, if, and, and in life, you've, you've got to get over that and cut it out. And, and take responsibility. Otherwise, you never address the critical issues. Um, I, I was going to get a whiteboard, but it, I forgot about it, and somebody else did as well, but it doesn't matter. Let, let me, I'm just, I just said that to upset him, because he went, oh, now I didn't. 
Yeah, you need to get over it, yeah. So I blame him, yeah, making an excuse. That's all right, I can do it without a whiteboard. I'll just draw in the air. How many of you, and some of you are in this age group, but how many of you can remember back to probably the age 15, 16 through to perhaps 20, and you had a whole lot of dreams? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody had any dreams. God help us. How many of you dreamt, you, you ladies, how many of you dreamt of living in a beautiful house with a prince? <laughs> we won't go whether or not you got there about the prince. How many of you guys dreamt of, you know, having some schmick sports car or something? Having, how many dreamt of uh, travelling to exotic places? And visiting here. How many of you, one of my dreams was a, a 60 foot catch where I'd cruise around the islands and all these exotic places, you know. Uh, uh, how many of you dreamt of being wealthy? How many of you dreamt of being famous? Yeah. <laughs> so, so what happens is this. See, we have this, this big dream circle filled with all kinds of dreams about all sorts of things. And so that's wonderful. But then by the time we reach 25 or 30, we've got this huge dream circle and we're trying to, to get that, our head around that when we're confronted with the reality of our income circle, which is about this big. <laughs> How many know what I'm talking about? And so the 60-foot catch becomes a 30-foot powerboat, becomes an 18-foot trailer boat, and ends up being a three-metre dinghy with a 10-horsepower outboard on the back. <laughs> and, and people spend all of the rest of their life reducing their dream circle to match their income circle. And so we drive all over town looking for a bargain, trying to save a couple of bucks, looking for something on special, doing all of that, spending all, uh, all sorts of energy and time and effort trying to make our dollar go a little bit further. And I sometimes wonder what would happen if we put the same amount of effort into increasing our income circle as we put into reducing our dream circle. And instead of racing around, you know, trying to do things on the cheap and stretch it and all of that, that we actually put the same amount of thought and energy and effort into working out how we could increase our income stream. There is, in certain areas of the marketplace, something that's referred to as 98% and 2%. And it's based on the fact that in most of Western society, it's true in Australia, I spent nine years on the board of directors of a national superannuation fund. And in Australia, and this is true right across, pretty true right across the Western world, 98% of people come to the retirement age financially dependent on other sources of income, 98%. In other words, they never ever become financially independent. 
And in countries like New Zealand and Australia, that is ludicrous. 98% that are full of excuses. 2%, only 2% become truly financially independent. And they are full of reasons and results. So are you full of excuses or are you full of reasons and results? And what we've got to learn to do is get from the 98% into the 2%. The simple fact and most of you may or may, or may not be aware of this, but the simple fact is in the Western world, um, governments will, know, will not much longer be able to fund national superannuation funds. People will have to prepare for their own future. They're just totally inoperable. They're bankrupt. Uh, the fact is that we have a growing aging population and a decreasing number of people in the workforce that are actually contributing to the national gross profit. We have increasing numbers of people involved in bureaucracy and government. In Australia right now, and it'd be similar here, you've probably got 50% of the workforce that's involved in bureaucracy and government and those kind of things. They're not producing anything that contributes towards the actual generation of the gross profit of the nation. And so you've got this, uh, do you realise that superannuation came in and was pitched at the age of 65 when the life expectancy of a male was 58? And in fact, most people never drew superannuation. But now the life expectancy of a male is probably 84 or something like that. And we're complaining, like Aussie, they've just said they're going to put the superannuation uh, age up to 70 and everybody's screaming because now we see it's a thing of right. Actually, it was meant to be a safety net for people that live beyond their use-by date, basically. That's a bit rough, isn't it? <laughs> so there you go. There's a few things to make you happy tonight. <laughs> okay. So what does the Bible say about this? Now, I make no apology, but tonight we're going to go through a whole lot of scriptures because I want to, and I've got them up here, I think, I hope, and Jack's been working on it, because I want you to read it. So how many know you retain what you read better than what you hear? So I want you to read it. And I know most people don't have Bibles and they can't turn on their cell phone to find one or whatever it is. So we're going to put it up there tonight. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 8.18. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 18 it says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to his forefathers, uh, to your forefathers, as it is today. So I want you to notice that it says God gives you the ability to create wealth. The context was that it was really a warning that God was giving his people in preparation for when they got into the promised land and they were living in blessing, that they reminded themselves, you didn't get this, wasn't you, your smarts, it was because God gave you an ability to generate wealth. Now, I want you to remember that this wasn't a promise given to selected entrepreneurs. It was given to the whole nation. Part of my favor, part of the covenant 
with you is to give you an ability to create wealth. And this confirms my covenant, but it also empowers the covenant. Now, how many of you like that? Some of you like it, some of you. It requires a strategy or a plan to activate the ability within you to increase wealth. God doesn't give you wealth. He gives you an ability. So if he's given you ability, how are you going to use it? It's like any other ability. You've got dormant gifts and callings within our lives, but we have to activate those. We have to position ourselves. We have to come up with a strategy, a plan, something that releases that. And, um, and so, you know, for many of us, it means we've got to change mindsets. We've got to learn some new things, and we've got to apply ourselves to increasing our income stream. And look at how do we do that. So, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. I don't know whether you got this on your list, actually. You did. You're a good man. Now, I want you to look at this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. Here is the provision for the promise. The promise is given in the Old Testament. We'll look at some other stuff there. But, but Jesus fulfilled all of the prophetic promises, but he released what was promised to us. So in other words, he paid the price. Now, I want you to notice and, um, that it talks about uh, he, was, he was rich, but he became poor so that you through his poverty might be made rich. At the cross, there was an exchange. You go to your cross and you're broken into the cross in your brokenness, and you exchange that for the wholeness that there is in Christ. We go in our sin and we exchange that for the righteousness that there is in Christ. We go in our poverty and we exchange that for the prosperity that there is in Christ, the richness in Christ. Now, I want you to notice it's by, it's by grace, not by works. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the context of this, in 2 Corinthians 8 and, and, uh, and chapter 9, chapters 8 and 9, Paul is speaking specifically about finance. So when you look at that, he's not talking about spiritually poor so you become spiritually rich. He was talking in financial terms. So, you know, part of the traditional religious mindset is that Jesus was poor and all of the New Testament workers and so on were poor. Actually, Jesus was not poor and his disciples were not poor. His disciples were self-employed businessmen. And on one occasion, Jesus said to them, when you go on this ministry trip, leave your money behind you. You don't have to say that to poor people. You say that to people that are used to putting their hand in their pocket and paying for whatever they need to. But he is saying to them, I want you to learn something different. I want you to learn how to rely on me. So this time, leave your money behind you. There's a lot of traditional thought, and I don't have time to get into it tonight, but if you actually study it out, you will find that Jesus, like for instance, when he went to the cross, the reason they gambled over his outer garment was it was a garment that was woven in one piece. It was a very expensive garment. And uh, so he was wearing an Amani suit, if you like. And um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of traditional thinking about this. And, and we'll pick up on a bit of that as we go along. Let's look at Isaiah 48, verse 17. 
Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I'm the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go, who teaches you to profit. If you study that out in the original language, it means to gain financial profit. The Lord teaches you to gain financial profit and who leads you by the way you should go. He's leading you into the way you should go in teaching you how to generate a financial profit. Psalm 112, verse 1 to 3. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. The, the point is this, you know, the, the blessing on the person who fears the Lord and delights greatly in his commandment. And then he, then he talks about some of the consequences of that. Number one is that your descendants will be mighty on the earth and your kids are going to be blessed. How many like the idea of that? Yeah, my kids are going to be blessed down through the generations and we can cope with that. We can live with that. That's all pretty comfortable. And then, you know, the last one is righteousness endures forever. That's pretty comfortable. Yeah, praise God. But how comfortable are you with the concept that wealth and riches will be found in your home because you walk with the Lord. I mean, how comfortable are you really? Is there the same anticipation of that, commitment to it, expectation of it, as it is for your children to be blessed and your righteousness to remain? Are you as comfortable with wealth and riches being in your home as you are with those other things? Ecclesiastes 2.26, I love this one, to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. (laughs) And just so you know, that's actually what the Bible says in Proverbs 13 and verse 22, says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. So why would God give the task of storing up wealth to the ungodly with the intention of giving it to the righteous if he didn't intend for your wealth to be increased? So where are you with that kind of process in your thinking? That kind of expectation. You know, there's, throughout Scripture, you see amazing instances of God transferring wealth to people. The children of Israel, slaves, overnight came out of Egypt with the wealth of the nation. An amazing transference. The woman of the nation was sent to knock on the door of their slave master's home and ask his wife for all their silver and gold and fancy clothes. How many know that was a pretty intimidating thing to do? You see the woman whose children are about to be taken and sold into slavery uh, to pay off the debt because her husband's died and all she's got is a little bit of oil but that oil was multiplied to, fulfill, to fill uh, every vessel 
that she gathered. The only thing that limited it was the number of vessels she gathered. You just kind of see it over and again. Uh, turn with me to, oh, well, look at the screen. You don't even have to do it, do you? Acts 20, verse 35 to 35. Oh, you got it in the Amplified. You are a genius. This is Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus when he's farewelling them. And so he says, you yourselves know personally that these hands ministered to my own needs and those of the persons who were with me. In everything, I've pointed out to you by example that by working diligently in this manner, we ought to assist the weak or it could be poor, being mindful of the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed, makes one happier and more to be envied to give than to receive. When the Lord began to open this passage up to me, it rocked my world because I had always had the picture of Paul. I'd been sympathetic about Paul. I'd, I'd kind of gone, poor Paul. He had to work his guts out all the time, tent making just to get by so he could do the work of the ministry. But actually, that's not what he said at all. He's saying, I'm a businessman and out of the profits of my business, I'm an entrepreneur. I've not only supported myself, I've supported my whole ministry team. And I did that quite purposefully to show you how we are meant to take care of the poor. And not only that, I've done it to be an example to you of what Jesus actually meant when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And it's interesting at Ephesus, and remember he's talking to the elders of Ephesus, when, there was, when he was persecuted in Ephesus, it was the city fathers that came to his defense because his business and ministry had become so important to the city. Actually, where he, where he was persecuted in other cities, it was the city fathers that kicked him out most of the time. But actually, Ephesus, they came to his defense. Now, I had a big problem with this. And I'll tell you why. Because when I came into pastoral ministry, the thing to do and the expectation was is that you pretty much sold everything you had and you know, didn't have anything to do with anything that was money because money was, you know, business was... You know, we were now the holy people of God and we did all the stuff and that was all out of court and we were in the holy place and, you know, all of that. And the consequence of that religious thinking and that poverty mindset has meant that over the years, hundreds and thousands of church leaders have come towards the latter years of their life with nothing, with nothing. Thank God, mindsets have changed a bit with that. So it kind of helped me when I saw that. I thought, gee, because, you know, I suppose you're a bit like me. I put Paul up there kind of one rung below Jesus. Do you know what I mean? It's like he wrote most of the New Testament. He's an awesome guy. And, and here he is. He's saying, actually, I, I wasn't just a church planter and a minister. I was actually an entrepreneur and you know, I did that quite purposely to show you how we're meant to take care of the poor and the weak and what Jesus meant was more blessed to give than to receive. And, you know, that was kind of like, whoa, that's another world. You getting anything out of this? I hope it's upsetting you a little, but it needs to upset people a bit tonight. I can tell you, I can tell you something will shift in the spirit tonight. I know that. Something will shift. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. Oh, 
there's that man again with the amplifier. This is, here is the biblical definition of prosperity. God is able to make all grace, that's every favor and earthly blessing, come to you in abundance so that you may always, under all circumstances and whatever the need, be self-sufficient, possessing enough to require no aid or support and furnished in abundance for every good work and charitable donation. You need to think about that. Biblical prosperity is having all your needs met in abundance and having an abundance left over to help other people. And notice it says, for every good work and charitable donation. New Living Translation says, and God will generously provide all you need and you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I wonder how you fit in relation to that. Let's go to Romans 8.32. You know, Everything in the new covenant comes to us by faith and by grace. Everything. So you receive by believing, first of all, and secondly, by positioning yourself to receive. Whatever it is, you, you know. Like, whether it be divine healing or, or whatever it is. How many know it begins by revelation that releases faith? And, and part of it is the decision, choosing to believe what the Word of God says, not what my past experience tells me or somebody else is telling me. I believe that, and I stand upon that, and I position myself to receive that, whatever that means. Sometimes positioning is simply about, you know, prayerfully coming before God consistently and allowing Him to do something on the inside of us. Sometimes it's about putting a strategy in place that enables us to walk into it. That's what prophetic promise is about. When prophecy comes, it's a, it's a revelation of your future potential. It's not a guarantee. And you have to position yourself for that and, you know, not make it happen, but you have to get yourself in a place where God can begin to bring that about. So it's true uh, for what we're talking about tonight. Look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely, that's an NIV, also freely give us all things. Some translations say abundantly give us all things. That one says graciously give us all things. Um, Now, we do need to work diligently with the ability God has given us and apply ourselves to the purposes that he has for us. And, uh, you know, in the marketplace, you establish your own value. And in order to earn more, you have to learn more. That's pretty much the way it goes. But, however, you have to realize that your prosperity is not determined by our efforts. It's determined by his grace. Now, when you think about it, this verse is actually saying, if God gave you heaven's best, why would he withhold some you know, things of material value. How many know 
you know, material stuff is pretty easy for God. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's not, it's not a big deal. If he gives you heaven's best, why would he withhold? But this verse is saying he actually freely, he freely gives us all things. Freely. Gives all. I, I did a study on the word all. You know what it means? It means all. All things. Now, again, let me ask you, does your faith actually go to that? Does your expectation go to that? Let's look at the next one. 1 Timothy 6, 17, 18. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God. One of the problems that wealthy people often have is that there's a fear of losing what they've got and so they don't really trust God for the future. So they hang on to what they've got and it destroys that generous spirit. And uh, here it's saying, don't, you shouldn't trust in that. You've got to trust in God. And notice what it says, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Does your faith go to that? Richly provide with everything not that you need, but for your enjoyment. How many of you could get happy about that? Some of you are looking like, ooh, this is really kind of, ooh. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things, you know, that's um, the devil really has, um, has had a voice in the church for generations saying that it's not spiritual to study what the Bible says about money. So most of us are actually ignorant of what the Scriptures say. So we, because we're ignorant of it, we don't have revelation. Because we don't have revelation, we don't have faith. I mean, I love that. I don't think God wants you to exist in life. I think he wants you to enjoy life. My wife, as you may or may not know, is an editor and a ghostwriter and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And um, a while ago, she had a couple from a church that we know quite well in Adelaide, or actually the pastor of the church contacted her and said, look, we've got a couple in the church that want to write a book and would you help them? So she said, yes. And part of the story is that it's a real shame I can't introduce you to the couple because it just adds a whole different dimension to the story. So this couple is, they're a little bit older than me, so they're in their early 70s. And they, he looks like, he's been selling fertilizer to the farming community most of his life. And he looks like he should be leaning against a fence post with a straw in his mouth. You know, he's, he's just a really laid back, nice, ordinary guy. So he was praying and uh, over the course of a period of time, as he was just in his daily devotions, he felt the Lord saying to him, I want you to take a holiday. Iris, his wife, had been unwell. And so he felt the Lord saying, I want you to take a holiday and let Iris get refreshed and da-da-da. And so John's going, yeah, that's very good, Lord. Yeah, thank you very much. Amen. You know, whatever. And, um, and then 
as he was talking to Iris about it, and they continued to pray, and then the Lord, you know, kept coming back to him with that. And so he was going, well, Lord, that's fantastic. What, what are we meant to do? And the Lord said, I, I want you to go around the world. I want you to travel around the world for three months. And so John went, that sounds like a lot of money. I haven't got that sort of money. And the Lord said, no, $500. So they talked about it and thought, yep, that's what God's saying. So you know what they did? They packed their suitcases, drew $500 out of the bank, had their adult children come with them to the airport in Adelaide and to wave them off for, well, it was actually four months because they felt they should go to the east coast of Australia and have a holiday for a month before they took off because Iris hadn't been well and so they were going to chill out there before they went too far and then they'd take off around the world for three months. So what happened was they got to the Adelaide airport and felt they should fly to Sydney, had no arrangements at all, and um, discovered they couldn't get a ticket to Sydney for two of them for 500 bucks. And the girl said, but if you're prepared to sit there, I can probably get, on, get you on standby. So they sat there for an hour, had their names called, and got standby tickets to Sydney and $137 change. Waved goodbye to their kids, got on board. Got to Sydney, felt they should take a train to Newcastle. They bought tickets, went to Newcastle. Coming into Newcastle, John is reminded, he, he has, he's reminded of the name of a guy he met 17 years earlier, hadn't spoken to in the time since, and discovered he had, still had this guy's phone number in his contacts. He rings the guy and the guy says, I have been waiting for your call. Our beach house is set up for you. It's got everything you need. He's discovered that this guy had become quite a wealthy businessman. And so he said to John, so where are you? He said, I'm in Newcastle. He said, that's fantastic. He said, my son is down there today doing a training course. He'll pick you up at five o'clock, take you out to the beach house. This guy lived in Sydney and drop you off there. They had a month there. They literally went round the world on $500. When they arrived back in Adelaide, they had $137 in their pocket. The change from when they first took off. And they toured amazingly. They, they were on a, a coach tour that ended in Paris. They'd been all around Europe. And uh, the last increment of the, co of the coach tour was accommodation in this hotel in Paris for the night. And that was the end of it. And um, they had no money at all. And they were sitting uh, in their room in this hotel uh, in the afternoon and praying, God, we would like a meal. We don't even have, have enough money for a meal. We're hungry. So just after they prayed, there's a knock on the door. And a couple that had been on the tour with them said, um, you know, it's been fantastic to meet you. We were just talking. We thought we'd like to take you out for dinner. So he takes them out for dinner. And partway through dinner, uh, says to John, you were saying that you're going on to the States. Um, you know, we, we would like to help you with that. 
And uh, do you need some money? We had this feeling you needed some money. And John said, no, we, we're fine. Don't, you know, we don't tell people about our needs. We, we're great, you know, no worries at all. And the guy kept pressing him. And, uh, and John wouldn't say anything. So the guy said, look, you just stay here with my wife. And he disappeared. And he came back and handed them an envelope. And in it was 4,300 US dollars, which was the amount of the tour that they had booked uh, their, and their flights to the States, you know. Um, actually, what I forgot to tell you was when they were in the beach house in, in um, north of Newcastle, they had... Uh, you know, they'd gone to a travel agent and, and got the tour they wanted around Europe. And, um, and the guy said to them, you'll have to pay for it in a fortnight. And they had no money. And John said, oh, that's right, I'll pay for it next week. And uh, within the week, they, all the money came in from total strangers, you know. Now, here's the question. If God said that to you, would you have the courage to pack your bag and go to the airport? Uh, to be honest, I wouldn't have. I would have gone. <laughs> but see, their expectation was in that zone. Um, my wife, when she was the age of seven, read uh, the Heidi books, if you know what they are, the stories of this Swiss girl and whatever in the mountains of Switzerland. She said to her mother, one day I'm going to the mountains of Switzerland. And so her mother said, in your dreams. And so they remained, that remained in Daryl's dreams. At the end of 2011, we were talking about it again, and, um, which we had done from time to time. And as we talked about it, I had this picture of God smiling. And I just said to her, God's smiling on that. Book it. And, uh, and you know, you have the comment, we haven't got any money, just book it. And so we spent a month touring around Europe and in the north of England. It probably cost about eighteen or $19,000. Um, I don't quite know how. But it was paid, most of it was paid for before we left. Everything we needed to pay for was paid for before we left. When we, when, when we toured, like, I mean, we did things well. Like, I mean, we're not extravagant, but I don't believe in cutting back either. I like, you know, I just, I like what I like and, you know. So we, we, we had a great time. There was nothing we got back going, I wish we'd done that. There was nothing like that. And... Um, and I got back, we got back, so that was, we left in the middle of September, got back in the middle of October, and um, Daryl had to go in for a hip replacement. And, um, and so from the second week of September through to the 1st of February, I had two weekends ministry. The rest of the time I was home either, or we were either tripping around Europe or I was looking after my wife as she recovered. And, of course, in the middle of that was Christmas and stuff, uh, which, you know, uh, as an itinerant, there's not too much going down at that time of the year. Uh, and here's the interesting thing, that through that whole period of time, and my, you know, our income obviously is related to ministry and stuff like that. So I basically had no income apart from two weeks right through those months and spent you know, eighteen or 19,000 or whatever it was on, on travel. 
um, paid all our outgoings, not just paid. I saw I still got a mortgage on the property we're in. I didn't just pay my mortgage. I reduced the capital. Was paying additional funds, and carried on as normal. That was pretty cool, wasn't it? So we booked another trip now. <laughs> but see, you, it's gone. But I, I want to challenge you because, see, this is our problem. We don't actually believe that. We see it and we go, yes, I agree, that sounds wonderful, but there's no conviction about it. <laughs> anyway, let me talk to you about sowing and reaping. Are you doing okay? I promise I'll finish soon. Soon? You know, sowing and reaping are two entirely different processes. The farmer uses entirely different equipment. It happens at different seasons. And you go about it entirely differently. As it is in the natural, so it is in the spiritual. Because you and I are constantly taught about giving, sowing, sacrificing, serving, doing all of that, we have faith to give, but we don't have faith to receive because we're not taught about that very much. We don't know how to receive. We don't have a strategy to receive. We don't position ourselves to receive. We, we sow and we hope. <laughs> Is that true? You know, we give and we go, I hope something's going to happen. Let me just look at one more scripture. Philippians 4 verse 19. And you know this so well, but my God shall supply all you need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, you know, the basis of that, by the way, every promise has a condition attached to it. And the condition attached to this was that the Philippi I was going to say the Filipinos, the Philippian um, church had sown into um, Paul's apostolic missionary journeys. They supported him over and over again. As he is, on the basis of that, so my God was... Now, what I want you to notice is this. It doesn't say he will provide your needs out of his riches and glory. It says according to his riches and glory. That's an entirely different thing. A father provides for their children according to their ability, not out of their ability. So in other words, if I am the son of a poor man, he will provide for me according to his ability. But if I'm the son of a very wealthy man, how many know my bedroom is going to look a bit different? Hello. <laughs> and he will provide for me according to his ability. So God is not talking about meeting your needs to, you know, just keep you in survival mode. He's talking about meeting your needs according to the unfathomable riches in glory. The problem is most of us use the word needs and we think basic. We think a bed to sleep in, some clothes to wear, and a feed every now and again. But your, your father ain't broke. And he wants to meet your need according. That's why I, I grew up in poverty. My dad died when I was four. My stepfather was an alcoholic in and out of prison. We moved around all the time. Um, I can remember eating potatoes and nothing else but for days on end because it was the only thing we had. Um, 
So, you know, that sort of thing does something to you. So I just, that's why this, I suppose that's part of one of the reasons why this message is so, is, you know, I'm so passionate about it because I just, I just hate that. And see, it's a denial of what Jesus did. It's a denial. And the devil robs us of our inheritance. And we live in the, under the curse that Adam released in the earth. You know, the curse that Adam released was blood, sweat and tears and limited return. You know, so people think I'm going to work my guts out all life and just get by. And so you've got to break that kind of thinking and realize that's not, that's not, that, that's what Egypt was for the children of Israel. And God comes to them in Egypt and says, I've got a land flowing with milk and honey. And actually, he won't even have to water your vegetable garden. It's going to be watered by the rain of heaven. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to eat from orchards and vineyards you didn't plant. Everything's provided. That's the promised land. How many know we're meant to be living in the promised land? Come on. So, you know, a farmer has a definite strategy to bring in the harvest. I remember... In 2004, I started this discussion with God. You owe me some harvest. And, uh, you know, I started this journey. I, and I've been preaching about finance for years and, and you know, all of that. But I, I just kind of thought there's something else I'm missing here, you know. And one of the things that, one of the scriptures the Lord took me to was in a, is Mark chapter 4. And it talks about, you know, sowing and reaping all the way through there. And that's the mystery of the kingdom. If you don't understand that, you don't understand how the kingdom works, all of that. But in verse 29, it says, you know, the guy plants a seed, it comes up and he, day and night, and he doesn't know how it grows. But as soon as he's ripe, he puts in a sickle. And the Lord said to me, you haven't got a sickle. <laughs> haven't got a sickle. In other words, he's saying, how are you going to bring in the harvest? What is your strategy? See? And um, see, what happens is if somebody's comes to a pastor and says, look, I believe God has called me to be a missionary. You don't say, go sit in a chair and wait till it happens. You say, okay, what missions organization are you going to work with? What training are you going to do? What, what strategy are you going to put in place? You know, but when it comes to receiving and bringing in the harvest, we don't talk like that. We don't work it through. You know? We don't kind of go, okay. And um, so anyway, Here's a thought for you. If you stay poor, you can only ever give a little all of your life. But if you learn how to build an asset base and go on to some wealth creation, you can give more in 12 months than you used to give in 10 years. And it's actually not about money. It's about what's in your heart and what's in your head. It's not about how much money you've got in the bank. I mean, you do have to put a strategy in place, but it's actually about revelation of the nature of God and revelation of the Word of God. Because everything in the new covenant comes to you by grace and faith. So faith and grace. So it's about positioning, getting revelation, positioning yourself, putting a strategy in place. Is this helping anybody? Okay, let me just wind up. I want to give you 25 points of how to... Not 25. <laughs> Steps to wealth creation or how to bring in your harvest. Okay, here we go. Number one, honor God with your finances. This is, this is 101, guys. Honor God with your finances. That means tithes and offerings. Sow seed generously, but differentiate between what is bread to eat and seed to sow. Don't sow your bread and don't eat your seed. You have to understand what season you're in. Are you in a sowing season or are you in a season of harvest? Ask the Lord. It's no good believing for harvest if you're in a sowing time. 
And you don't want to be sowing and harvest on in that sense. One of the things we have to understand is this whole thing about tithes and offerings. You know, the Malachi 3 passage where it talks about if you bring in the whole tithe, you will open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing you won't have room enough to contain it. How many have you got room enough to contain a bit more? The problem is we put that in a material sense. Open windows of heaven have got nothing to do with material blessing. It's spiritual. It appears three times in Scripture, and every time it talks about the reign of heaven, which is a type of spirit. So what he's saying is that if you will take care of the practical needs of the house, I will take care of the spiritual needs. The next verse says, And I will rebuke the devourer, and the seed in the field will fully produce a harvest. So now he's talking about your material blessing is related to the seed you sow. So tithing has got nothing to do with material blessing. It never had. And here's the interesting thing. That's the only passage of Scripture that you could make that interpretation about. And you never interpret the Bible based on one Scripture. It's always at least two or three. And Paul, when he talks to the Corinthians, all about finance in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, he's very clear. He said, you sow little, you reap little, you sow more, you reap. He's talking about money. He's talking about this is how you bring material increase into your life. It's not your tithes, it's what you sow over and above that. That's upset a few people right there. So offering time Sunday, think about it. Number two, pay yourself first. Pay yourself first. 10% of everything you earn, put into an investment account and don't touch it, other than for investment. We have a guy in the church by the name of Gino Pellegra. Gino is probably 58 now, I think. And as a 14-year-old illiterate apprentice to a plumber, and he doesn't even know what plumbing is. And somebody says to him, Gino, if you want to be wealthy, save 10% of everything you earn, put it in an investment account, don't touch it, use it for investment only. Gino did. Three years ago, he got offered $110 million for his family business. It started there, and he learnt what plumbing was all about, set out on his own, and then decided that he would take the money he had saved over the years and he would build a little factory, little concrete tilt slab factory, and he would lease it out to somebody. So he taught himself how to make, you know, pre-stressed concrete slab for the tilt walls and built the thing and leased it out. And that's what he's done over the years. He's leased one out and then he built two and leased them both out and then he built three and in the recent years he's been building shopping malls. See, one of the things we don't understand is the power of incremental increase and compounding interest. Most people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in 20 or 30 years. So pay yourself first. It's a very simple thing. Most of us in this room could afford to take 10% of what we're earning. Thank you and put it in an investment account. Is that true? Some of you go, I didn't, don't earn enough. You know, when Gino married his wife, he said to her, 
your allowance for personal things per week will be $2. He was very committed to saving the 10%. A year later, she came to him and said, Gino, I can't make the $2 stretch as far as it needs to. So he said, now your allowance will be $8. And one day you'll be very wealthy. Well, today she is. She drives a new Mercedes and lives in a palace and but it started with 10%. And it's just that incremental increase in the power of compounding interest. And then when you get a bit of money, you have to pray and decide, look at your skill set and decide, what am I going to do with it? What am I going to... You have to get financially educated and say, what am I going to do to invest? Am I going to buy a, a, a rental house and, or am I going to do whatever? Those kind of things. That makes sense. You could do that 20 years from now. It'd be very different from what it is now. now. The church that we were pastoring in Melbourne in the low socioeconomic side of the city made up of refugees and immigrants. Our whole congregation, pretty well the whole congregation was like that. And we, and you know, Filipino factory workers, a guy there that used to, all day his job was filling the margarine containers from a machine that filled margarine containers. That was his job. And that's what he's still doing, but now he owns four investment properties, lives in a very nice home, and both he and his wife drive late model cars. And they would have sown more in missions back into the Philippines than what they've got in their assets. All because they learned how to... See, money, money is a commodity. Money's like petrol in your tank. You use it to get you where you want to go. Money doesn't have power. That's one of the lies of the spirit of mammon. God has power, the devil has power. Money doesn't have power. It's a commodity. So you don't hoard it, you use it to get you where you want to go. Number three, good financial management. Good financial management. I don't say a lot about that stewardship, budgeting. If you don't have a budget, you'll overspend, all of that. Number four, eradicate debt. Oh, we can talk a bit about, about this. I probably won't. Um, you've got to understand how debt works. They talk about debt equity uh, ratios. And you're talking, you know, you, you get people say, oh, well, you, you buy this house and then when the value goes up, you lever against that and, and buy another one and you borrow and you go and they talk about the debt equity ratio. Make sure you haven't got too much debt in relation to what you actually own, what you know, the equity you've got in it. But there's another thing that needs to be, be tied into that, and that's your cash flow. So it's under, understanding how all that works. You've got to get, you know, educated about that. And one of the things you might be interested to know is that wealthy people rarely carry personal debt. The two things that keep people poor and middle class is debt and taxes. And mainly it's because of ignorance in relation to both. We've been taught for years that your home is your best investment, so go buy a home as quickly as you can. Actually, an investment is something that generates income. A home's a liability. It's not an investment. The only thing that makes it an investment is that it is a compulsory saving process, and, and um, you know, if you're diligent, you increase, you know, your, your equity in it over a period of time, but you pay huge amounts in interest over the period of time. And so, actually, the proverb says, uh, prepare your work in the field and then build your house. In other words, get your income uh, stream happening before you build your house. 
Uh, we tend to do it the other way around. But anyway, you've got to think about debt. Number five is long-term vision. Have a long-term vision. It's what I said before. People overestimate what they can achieve in a year or so, but they underestimate what they can achieve in 20, 30 years. And because they don't have a long-term vision, they don't bother to start. They kind of go, well, I couldn't, you know, I can't really do much. You know, and so they don't bother. But if they did a little bit, you know. Uh, number six, which is related to that, is delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. You don't need what you think you need all now. You know, life, most people keep themselves poor through lifestyle expenditure. It's generally you know, just lifestyle issues. We want to eat a bit better. We want new this and new that and something else and all of that sort of stuff, and it keeps us poor. And, and people borrow for depreciating items. Don't borrow for depreciating items. It's just such a, a, a crazy thing to do because, you know, you go and buy whatever it happens to be and walk out the store with it. It's only worth half what it was five minutes ago, and you're going to pay twice the price that it's worth anyway. You know, it's just a... It's just dead end. Learn, learn to, you know, delay your gratification. Number seven is a passive or additional income stream. Create a passive or additional income stream. Jim Rohn, who is uh, America's probably most famous philosopher on these kind of things, he said, what you do at work earns your living. What you do after work creates your wealth. You see, most people are busy watching TV at night. And they're too busy to do anything else or whatever they're doing. You know, we're busy. Nobody's busy. It's a figment of your imagination. You're in control. A lot of people are, are busy but not effective, you know. So it's about being effective. And, um, and, and so you've got to ask your question, what's in your hand? What is it that you could do? I, we were up in South Australia just quite recently actually talking to uh, a couple and they were up to their eyeballs in debt. And, you know, got all sorts of problems. So the woman was pouring out her heart. And in the course of it, she tells us that she's an artist that loves to paint horses and things. And she gets all excited about that. You know, she, all of a sudden she lit up on this. And so she starts showing us photos on the, on the iPad. And I said, so what are you doing with that? And she said, what do you mean? And it was obvious that she's a really good artist. I said, have you ever sold those? She said, oh, one or two. But, you know, I just generally paint them and give them away. Well, she, I said, what, you know, and, and uh, so anyway, she decided she'd get back into painting. She wasn't painting very much, and I got an email from her probably, oh, wouldn't have been more than a fortnight later, and she'd just sold a painting for 600 bucks, you know, and you just kind of, so what's in your hand? What could you do? I have a story of a, of a woman that loved making, she's an American, it could only happen in America, but she loved making cookies and they must have been really nice cookies and she took them around and gave them to friends and one of her friends that she kept on giving to was saying, why don't you do something with this? So in the end she decided to do something with it and within three years she was turning over a million dollars a year selling co uh, cookies. She set up a factory. Uh, get educated about what you're doing. What you, I, I have a, a pastor friend in in uh, Aussie that loved making model cars and model boats and that, and he, he'd like to put a petrol-driven engine, engine in them so they were real models that had a little petrol engine. But the problem was he couldn't find petrol tanks for these things. And so you know what he did? He started moulding little plastic petrol tanks 
and selling them on the internet. And he sold them all over the world. And out of the profit he made from selling little plastic petrol tanks, he bought his first classic American car, a 1973 Camry and rebuilt, uh, not Camry, uh, Camaro and, and rebuilt that and now he's bought a Pontiac Fiber 1969 or GTH you know just out of selling little petrol tanks see and the problem is for many people their head doesn't go there do you know what I mean you're just going oh I couldn't do anything um, Robert Kiyosaki says if you've never been a business the two ty types of business you should get involved in one is buy a franchise second is get into network marketing because in both of those things they have systems just follow the system you'll make some money so if you don't know anything about business get into it now network marketing I know is a dirty word around you know because most people don't understand what the industry is about but I mean I know people that are generating $700,000 a year network marketing and they've only been in the industry three years Would an extra three or four or five hundred dollars a week make much difference to you? You know, that is so common for people to do, yet the church is ignorant of it. Home based businesses are a huge industry, a huge growth industry worldwide right now. And um, there's people making real. In fact, a company that I, I'm involved with, I don't do much with it, but I'm involved with it, is uh, a network marketing company. And the highest earner in the company started, he got, he'd been a butcher all his life. He got made redundant at the age of 73. He'd never done anything other than butchery. And, and for health reasons, he started, he got involved with this company. And the company's only been going 12 years, so I can't tell you how long ago. I don't know when he started. But he got involved because of some of the products. And then he decided he'd get involved with the business side of it. And since he got involved, and I don't, as I said, the company's 12 years old, so it'd be a maximum of 12 years. He's, made, he's, he's the largest earner in the company. He's made $40 million. I know a chiropractor that was, got involved for the health reasons and then got interested in the business side and in five months he was making more out of it than he was out of his chiropractic practice and so he sold it. But see, the church is ignorant of a lot of this because our mindsets are all wrong. We're not looking for opportunities. We're out of touch with what's going on. We, we're not... Is it making sense to anybody? I hope it's upsetting a few of you. Making go. Am I saying go out and you join a network marketing and spend all your life chasing money? Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But see, there's a dormant ability in most of our lives uh, to create to do something better in this area than we can. Now we're not all meant to be full-time business people or whatever. But what could you do? to instead of reducing your dream circle, to actually begin to increase your income circle. What could you do? For most people, an extra couple of hundred bucks a week would be, it would make quite a bit of difference to their life. And it, that is so easy to do, it's ridiculous. Uh -oh. Finally, Actually, here's a little thought for you. Do you know what the sin of the poor and middle class is? Envy and greed. 
Think about it. I had some guys used to drive into our church car park in some very nice vehicles. And you'd watch people. Oh, look at him everywhere. I had a guy, we had one, car, one family used to come in in a, in a very nice soft top Mercedes and they came in one day, lovely weather, the hood's down, drive in and this guy's looking at the gun. And I said to him, you'd like that, wouldn't you? And he went, no, no, no. I said, you would like that. And he kind of went, anyway. Final point, the power of leverage. The power of leverage. In other words, building an income stream using other people's efforts and other people's money. We're not talking about ripping people off. We're talking about leverage. And that's what, you know, things like network marketing and rental properties and passive investments and all of that sort of thing is quite legitimate. I was talking to a pastor's wife actually up in the North Island just recently and they were talking to him about the fact that they're finding it a bit tough financially. Their kids are all teenagers and, you know. And so I was talking to them about it. And, and in the process, she comes out with this thing that she makes these, these soft toys, these bunnies, but they're really weird contemporary bunnies, you know. So she makes these things because she likes making them. And so she has, you know, given a few away. And then she found she could sell them. People were paying 60 bucks for one of these bunnies. So I said, how long does it take you to make it? And I figured out how many hours it was, six or eight hours or whatever. And, you know, there's a, a bit of money in it and that sort of thing. So we worked it out. And she's probably making, you know, just eight or ten bucks an hour or, or less, you know. I said to her, well, instead of doing that, why don't you, you know, design a few and contact some factories in China and make a few hundred of them, get them shipped over. And you don't have to do any of the work. All you've got to do is work out how to market. And she's just kicked up. I noticed on, on a Facebook page, you know, she's got these bunnies all over the place. And she's, she hasn't, I don't think she's gone to China yet, but she's in the process. She's got somebody else actually making them for an hour, paying them a bit and, you know, because volume, you know, all of that. So you just got to think about what could I do? 